lesson on which today's teaching is based comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 22 through 26. Here we read the following. And he said, this is Jesus speaking, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for somebody to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. We're now uh, looking at our third. Biblical discipleship is the third of our St. Marcus core values. And some of you, as we've gone through these and looked at uh, each of those core values, some of you have noticed that it's a concept, it's a noun, it's a, it's a thing, but uh, there's a descriptor, an adverb or adjective attached to it. So, for instance, our first one is we don't just say Christ, we say Christ first, emphasizing the idea of priority attached to it. We don't just say love, we say sacrificial love, the biblical definition of love. We get to the third core value, we say biblical discipleship. I'll get to that in a second. The fourth one is called not just expectations, but radical expectations. And the reason for that, you, you might say biblical discipleship, isn't that a little bit of a cop-out? Aren't the rest of them also biblical? Shouldn't we express biblical love and have biblical expectations? Of course. We, I'll admit we wrestled with determining this descriptor more than any of the others, but what we were trying to get at in all of the descriptors, and particularly in this one, is acknowledging that there is something interesting that any researcher out there uh, knows is going on in America regarding spirituality and regarding religion. If you look at any surveys and any statistics, something's happening within American Christianity that has gotten us to a point of what you might call something along the lines of a soft discipleship or a uh, consumer-minded discipleship. And one of the first pieces of research that I always turn to for this is a, a book, I've referenced it perhaps before, by a guy, a researcher named George Barna, who's about as well-respected of a Christian researcher in the country. About 10 years ago, he wrote a book called The Seven Faith Tribes. And he said every single person in the country uh, falls into one of seven different categories based on their own self-admissions and beliefs about God and beliefs about organized religion and beliefs about the implications of that in their lives. By far, the biggest category of self-identification in our country is Christian. 79%, this is 10 years ago, but 79% of the country would self-identify if push came to shove on a survey, they would say, I'm a Christian. Barna found something else out in his information, though, and he said, I can't leave this piece out because Christians, those who identify as Christians, are split into two very distinct categories that I have to make some kind of acknowledgement of. And he called them, in his book, he calls them the difference between captive Christians and casual or cultural Christians. And he said the difference is this. 18% of the people who responded to the survey said that they were willing to sacrifice uh, in significant sorts of ways in their life based on their attachment to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 18% of people said, I'm willing to sacrifice in significant and measurable ways, including my time, including my money, including some of my relationships in life, maybe even including my life itself because of my personal attachment to Jesus Christ. 
He didn't get into it in the book, but I'm making some assumptions here myself. If you push those two numbers together and you take away the 18% who say they're willing to sacrifice in measurable ways because of their allegiance and attachment to Jesus Christ, you take that number away from those who self-identify as Christian, you get a very important number, 61%. You know what 61% is? It's a majority. It's a norm. It's an average. The average person living in America, according to these statistics, is somebody who self-identifies as Christian, but by their own self-admission and self-attestation, they are not willing to sacrifice anything in their life in any kind of real significant ways based on their attachment to Jesus Christ. My friends, I would call this a discipleship problem. This is a real issue. This hasn't happened always in the history of Christianity. This is a, a unique issue that our country is struggling with right now. This is the reason why a guy, another researcher by the name of James Emery White can write a book several years ago called The Rise of the Nuns, which has nothing to do with uh, Roman Catholic nuns rising up in revolt over anything. Nuns is N-O-N-E-S. means non-religiously affiliated. It are, almost wasn't a category 50 years ago in our country. Today, it's by far the fastest growing category. About a third of all millennials self-identify as not religiously affiliated. And the numbers that we're getting on the generation right after the millennials, Gen, Gen Z, uh, we don't know for sure until they become adults and make their own kind of choices there, but it's probably going to be, so far as we can tell, close to about 50%. What's happening? To some extent, by what they're saying, the millennials and the generation after them, they're saying the discipleship that we have seen in a generation or two prior than us, not across the board, but as an average, we see it as kind of a soft discipleship. We see it as kind of a consumer-minded discipleship. And you know what? In a morally relativistic age, the one commandment that still remains even for people who are morally relativistic is, be true to thyself, don't be a hypocrite. And so what you find is a lot of young adults who are saying, you know what? I don't know what I believe and I don't know what exactly I am, but I'm not that and I don't want to be that. And therefore, they're opting out of organized faith, particularly organized religion and church. We've got a discipleship issue going on. Now, something unique is happening in America right now as a result of this, but it's not uh, only in America in history. Jesus and the people that he'd worked with had some discipleship issues too. In fact, we find that in our lesson today uh, when he tells them to calculate the cost of discipleship. The, the, our lesson is from Luke chapter 9, but if you read through the entire gospel of Luke, you find that the first eight chapters, and every commentator will outline it this way, the first eight chapters are all about people saying, who exactly is this guy? Who is this guy that the wind and the waves obey him? That he can calm the storms, that he can feed the 5,000, that he can heal the crippled uh, and the leprous, that he can uh, uh, even raise dead people back to life. By this time, the, the widow of Nain's son and Jairus' daughter have both people have witnessed Jesus raising them back from the grave. Who is this guy? And by chapter 9, Jesus says, not to everybody, but he turns to his disciples and he says, I'm curious, who do you say that I am? And it's at that moment that Peter comes forward and gives this remarkable profession of faith where he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. And the moment somebody acknowledges that, Jesus immediately in the Gospels will say, that's right, now follow me. To the extent that you understand who Jesus is, the only logical response is to hop on board with his mission and follow him. The only time Jesus pumps the brakes along the way is he says, yes, I want you to follow me, but... 
Make sure that you calculate the cost of discipleship first. Make sure that you understand exactly what it is that you're getting into. And we know historically that a lot of the first century Jewish people, for instance, their expectation of a Messiah was very different from what we tend to understand the Messiah to be today. Uh, A lot of, for instance, first century Jewish people were not taking Hebrew scriptures that talked about a suffering individual, a suffering servant. They were not necessarily, very few of them, applying that to the coming Messiah. They were expecting the Messiah as an earthly king who would kind of triumphalistically restore the nation of Israel. And so when Jesus says things like what he says in our text today, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. It was a complete shock to their system. And the only deeper shock was when he said, and if you want me to be your Messiah, you know what you got to do? you got to take up your cross and you've got to follow right after me into that suffering. Jesus is saying, calculate the cost. Christian discipleship, biblical discipleship, is not a soft thing. It's not an easy thing. The invitation is made to all, but discipleship is not for everybody. And we find out today that Jesus says, there's three qualifications that I want you to have to be my people, to be my disciples. And he gives it to us in what we're going to look at in this uh, core value as kind of our home base passage, the passage that we turn to to see, yep, this absolutely is a biblical principle. And it's verse 23 from our text where Jesus said, whoever wishes to be my disciple must do three things, deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. It's self-denial. It's missional suffering, and it's the subordination of identity. Okay? What, is it, what does this look like? First of all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Denying your self-denial is incredibly unnatural. I don't know if you've noticed this. Um, and Jesus isn't just talking about denying yourself pleasures and comforts in life, although that's an easy place to start. You know how hard this is. Denying yourself something that you might want when it's somebody's birthday at work and there is a big fat piece of cake with your name on it sitting in the break room and you're just counting down the minutes till you can get there. Like, if you've been on a diet, you know how hard that is to say, okay, my afternoon is either going to be horrific or good based on whether or not I get that cake. Self-denial for pleasure is very difficult. Denying yourself something for your house, denying yourself something for your wardrobe, denying yourself the next iPhone that comes out. Because you think you got it. That can be tough, but that's not exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's not just talking about pleasure and comfort. He doesn't say deny yourself pleasure per se. He says deny yourself. That means I think like this about this, but no, because the Bible says this. And I feel very strongly about this, but no, because the Bible says this. It doesn't help that almost every advance in technology is not designed to help you with self-denial. It's designed to help you with self-gratification and self-indulgence, right? Almost every invention that comes out creates greater ease, greater expediency, greater efficiency. And yet Jesus is saying, I want you to say no. I want you to be able to say no to yourself. It's an essential component of discipleship. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that in the Bible we see this behavior that's very foreign to people today called fasting. Uh, Fasting, I I, I know very few people that actually intentionally practice anything like fasting. Um, What exactly is fasting? We sometimes think of it as this maybe like product of an old uh, mosaic code 
behavior or something like that, and some New Testament believers do it sometimes too. You know what fasting is? We often associate it also with food. Uh, it's a bigger principle than that. The purpose of fasting is self-denial for the sake of dependence on and pursuit of God. The purpose of fasting is self-denial for the sake of dependence on and pursuit of God. Let's just use the food example for a second. If you deny yourself food for like 24 hours, if you've ever tried this before, you know you feel like you're dying. Now, you're not actually dying if you don't get a meal for 24 hours, but you feel like you're dying because your blood sugar uh, drops and you have this pounding headache sets in and your fuse is this long, you're irritable and you're angry and you're tired and you're snapping at people because you feel like you're dying. Uh, And it helps you realize how enormously dependent of a creature you are and how incredibly fragile you are that if you can't go 24 hours with a meal, you feel like you're ripping apart from the inside out. See, self-denial helps kill self-sufficiency. And when Jesus says, deny yourself, he's saying, I want you to understand that your life is not about you and if you make it about you, it's actually going to kill you. Now, I would, I, uh, I would encourage you to consider at some point in time a, a, some level of fasting in your life. Maybe it is food uh, if it's done the right and healthy way, but maybe it's uh, a fasting of technology Maybe it's a fasting of um, TV and video games. Maybe it's a fasting of the internet or a fasting of something like that. It's an important trait for Christians to be able to say no to themselves. Very few people can actually do that. Am I I saying, Pastor, you're saying, uh, to to the extent that you make yourself miserable, if I truly make myself miserable, then I can be a Christian. Absolutely not. But I'm saying, and never mind what I'm saying, what Jesus is saying is an essential characteristic of a discipleship is the capacity to self-deny. Okay? Second point, not only does he say deny yourself, he also says take up your cross. Now what does this mean? Most people can associate it with suffering a cross, but uh, it's not the same thing as uh, when your car breaks down and you've got an unexpected payment. That is a form of suffering, but that's not a cross. Uh, when your house needs some kind of remodel, when your kids are acting up and misbehaving, that's terribly frustrating, but it's not a cross. Why? Because the rest of the world all experiences the exact same thing. Non-believers experience car repairs and frustrating children to the same extent that believers do. Jesus doesn't tell the entire world to pick up their crosses. He tells his disciples to pick up their crosses. And therefore, the cross, properly speaking, is a suffering that is specifically attached to Jesus Christ an experience that you endure for the sake of your connection to Jesus Christ. So, for instance, when you pursue honesty and truth in relationships, whether that means confessing your own sins to somebody and apologizing, whether that means um, holding somebody accountable, and there's a fear of rejection and somebody rejects you as a result of that, that is some suffering perhaps attached to the cross. When you stand up and fight against social injustices, despite the fact that the majority might be perfectly comfortable with the status quo, that can be a cross. When you pour your life into somebody else and you're so generous with them and you never hear a thank you, and when you pour a witness into somebody else and you never hear an I believe, that can be a form of a cross. Tell you what, when, when your best friend no longer speaks to you anymore because you don't fully condone or support his lifestyle, 
when your boyfriend breaks up with you because you're not willing to go as far as he's trying to push you physically in that relationship, when you look perhaps to your government and say, uh, I don't care what you have to do to me, but I will not recant my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. See, that's a cross. That's a cross. Now, it's, it's really an interesting thing that uh, for many people, a cross has essentially become a symbol. We wear them around our necks, right, as a symbol of hope and empowerment and peace and, and that sort of thing. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that because the cross has become that symbol. All I'm saying is first century Roman people would say that's insane. First century Romans were, it was considered uh, socially impolite to discuss things like crucifixion in public settings. It would be similar to somebody today wearing a necklace with a little electric chair or a lethal injection syringe uh, around their neck, a symbol of execution. And yet for Christians, it's come to mean hope and peace and empowerment. Why? Because Christians understand that life comes through a cross. Power, hope comes through. Suffering that somebody experiences can bring life into my life, and that's exactly what happens with Jesus Christ. And that's exactly, if he's asking me to take up my cross, you know what he's trying to do? He's trying to get life into somebody else's life life into somebody else's world, even through my suffering. What does that look like? Let me give you, just give you one example that I think will hit. I think every single person in here today probably has a situation like this. Virtually every person that I know, including myself, has a conversation in their life, a critical conversation that they probably should be having, but they've been dragging their heels on right now, myself included. And we don't want to do it because you've got to psych yourself up for it and it's very hard and they might reject you and they might think you're self-righteous and judgmental or they might whatever else. <sighs> but if you're not going to speak into their life, who is? God is sending you. Here I am, Lord. Use me. All right, let me use you. Open your mouth and have this conversation and don't deny somebody else a life-giving opportunity that might come through a little bit of your suffering in the, in the midst. Okay, so pastor, again, what you seem to be saying is that in order for me to be a Christian, I have to be constantly making myself uncomfortable. Absolutely not. You are Christian only because Jesus cosmically made himself uncomfortable for you on the cross. Your, your salvation is entirely about his discomfort from 2,000 years ago, not about any discomfort you do right now. It's already guaranteed to you. What Jesus is saying is, if you are my disciple, however, daily sacrifices willingness, cost, is going to be made. Be my disciple. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And the last thing he says is, I want you to follow me. Um, most of our life, I think it's fair to say, most of our life is spent attempting to find an identity of our ideal self. See, we tend to think we are who we are not because of what we let go of, but because of what we gain. And so we, look, we point to things like initials on a business card, and we point to trophies on a shelf, and we point to beautiful people in our family pictures, and we say, that is who I am. That's who I am. That's what I want to be. That's who I am to the world. And Jesus says, no. There's nothing wrong with, with looking nice. There's nothing wrong with professional accomplishment. There's nothing wrong... Uh, with career success or anything like that. But you know what he also says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and I'll give all those things to you. Don't try to relate to me in a way by which you think I'm just giving you a little boost for you to become who you really want to be. 
See, this is one of our issues is we relate to God often almost as though he's a personal assistant in our lives. We're inviting him to assist us to become the people that we want to be, which is completely out of whack. A personal assistant uh, isn't somebody that gives you life direction and guides you and gives you vision for the future. A personal assistant probably uh, does some favors for you and helps you uh, carry out some logistics so that you get to go wherever you want to go. And Jesus says that's it's exactly backwards. Stop trying to relate to me that way. That's death. My favorite examples of this, a lot of you know, um, I'm first and foremost a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm also a littler disciple of, of Tim Keller, who I, a Christian author and teacher that I read all the time. Uh, one of the examples that he'll give of an experience in his life that he doesn't describe as the conversion experience, but a pivotal moment was when he was about 19, 20 years old and he went away to a Christian camp during the summer, Christian conference, Christian camp, and he heard a speaker by the name of Barbara Boyd, who was also a Christian youth leader and author. And Barbara Boyd gave him two illustrations that he said has stuck with him for the rest of his life and forever shaped his understanding of how he should relate to God. First illustration went like this. He said, Barbara Boyd told the group, she said, if I come to your door and knock on the door and you say, come in, Barbara, but stay out, Boyd, he says, that's impossible. Why? Because Barbara and Boyd are not two separate halves of the same individual. It's not like Barbara, you have a top half and a bottom half or anything like that. If you invite Barbara in, Boyd's got to come in too. They're two aspects of the exact same person. And so what she said was, if you say to Jesus Christ, come on in as my Savior, please answer all of my prayers pay for all of my sins, heal all of the brokenness and suffering that I experience in life, but stay out, Lord. I, I don't want you to be my master. I don't want you to tell, uh, tell me how to live my life, and I don't want you to tell me to lay down my life and make it all about you. She said, you can't do that. You can't invite Jesus in as a Savior, but push him out as a Lord. If you're going to invite Barbara to come on in, Boyd's got to come on in with her. See? The second illustration that he gave was like this. It's one that I've heard a hundred different times uh, in a hundred different ways. I'm sure you've probably heard some variation of it too. All you have to do is, in, in, on YouTube, plug in scale of the universe. And if you want to feel small and have the hairs on the back of your neck stand up about how small not just you are but the earth is, think about the scale of the universe. But the example that was given back to him in 1971 was the distance from the sun to the earth is about 92, 93 million miles. 92, 93 million miles. But if you shrink that down on a scale to one sheet of paper, here's the distance from the earth to the sun, 93 million miles. In order for, for you to visualize the distance across our galaxy, the diameter of the Milky Way, you know how big this would be? A stack of papers 310 miles high. Now, our universe excuse me, our galaxy, the Milky Way, is one of what we know as a hundreds of billions of galaxies in the known universe. We don't even know what's beyond. We're probably a speck of sawdust in an entirely bigger thing. Does it make any sense that if Jesus actually does hold this entire universe together simply by the power of his word, does it make any sense that you'd be inviting him into your life to serve as your personal assistant? He's overqualified. 
This would be like if you're a JV high school quarterback and you invite Aaron Rodgers to come on over because you want to give him a couple pointers on how to throw a football. No. Humble yourself. Listen to him. Let him lead. Aaron Rodgers is there. You'd tell your kid, follow whatever he tells you to do. Uh, Pastor, I get it. You're saying that if we follow Jesus and we become more like him, then we will become Christians. Absolutely not. You are a Christian because before you ever even thought of following Jesus Christ, from eternity past, Jesus Christ was thinking about you and how he was going to save you. And then in the fullness of time, he went to the cross and poured out all of his life and all of his blood to pay for all of your sins. And as though that were somehow not enough, he also paid for everything that you would ever need to have a paradise uh, of eternity. But now he says, follow me. Follow me. What does that look like? Subordinate your identity. Let go of your plans for yourself. All my hopes and my dreams for my future and my, let it die. Let it get wrapped up in Christ and follow him wherever he tells you to go. Jesus never says, I'll go to the cross if you follow me. He says, I'm going to the cross for you. I have gone to the cross for you. I'll pick up the tab for all of your sins. I'll pick up the tab for all of your life needs. Now follow me. You are not saved because you're his disciple. You're a disciple if and only if you understand what he has done to save you. So deny yourself. Suffer according to his mission and go wherever he leads you. And he will breathe his life into the world specifically through you, his disciples. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today we humbly come confessing that we've spent a good chunk of our lives trying to get you to hop on board with the great plans that we have.